next time you come to the forest, do me a favor. Only you can prevent wildfires. Smokey Bear taught us that only you can prevent wildfire. Along came the billboards, the public service announcements, and the free gear at Forest Service Ranger Stations. Smokey showed up at our parades, on our TVs, and in our hearts. We trusted him to teach us about wildfire. Every child, every parent, knew Smokey's message. Wildfires are bad, they must be stopped, and it's your responsibility. Smokey Bear was an invention of the U.S. Forest Service and the War Advertising Council in the mid-40s. Tim Inglesby, former wildland firefighter and current executive director of Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology. It was pure propaganda from the start. Okay, getting us to fear and hate and fight fires. Many people note that it's one of the world's most successful advertising campaigns. It's been successful, but this is what's really bizarre. Because for most of our species' existence, you could trace that back to the earliest hominids. A million, a million and a half years ago, fire, we evolved with fire. We wouldn't have the big brains and the small jaws we had without fire, cooking our foods. We, we were attracted to fire, fiery landscapes. We, and, and to this day, the first thing people do when they go camping, they want to build a fire. And it's a natural magnet for human interaction and attraction. So we have this innate natural love and attraction for fire, I would call pyrophilia, a million years or more. But in the last hundred years, this complete anomaly of pyrophobia, socially conditioned fear and hatred of fire. Now who's gonna win ultimately? <laughs> wildfires show up in our media as natural disasters. When wildfires make news, they are tragic. We've become obsessed with stopping them. The message is always, we just need to try harder and get better at putting out fires. A lot of the news media, it thrives on sensationalism. That's what gets its eyeballs and ears glued to its, its products. So it's a constant kind of hype and hysteria, if you'll pardon the expression, for wildfire coverage, especially framed in this kind of militaristic mindset firefighting, initial attack. A lot of reporters kind of puff themselves up like war reporting, okay? <laughs> For the front lines if, if, if they can. And so they, they attend to the, the words of the incident commanders, the general staff and all that. Rarely do they talk to actual ground level wildland firefighters on the line. What we see on the screens are carefully framed. We see the most active wildfire scenes, raging crown fires, 
which can and do happen, but are rare events. And they're extreme, but they're rare. Much of what fires do is just burning on the ground. It's walking or creeping or smoldering, sometimes running. And we rarely see that. And we'd hardly ever see the same place a couple years after the fire, where it's greened up and it's thriving with wildlife. And so the news media portrays fire with this kind of thrives on the war metaphor and promotes this kind of catastrophe mentality. That's just all disaster. And that's what sells. Fire is not like those other natural disasters that we could not prevent. An earthquake, a hurricane, or a volcanic eruption. We prepare for those. We change how we build high-rises in earthquake-prone zones. We move houses outside of the floodplains. And we develop early warning systems for tsunamis and volcanic eruptions. But with fire, we continue to focus on putting them out. We apply military tactics to fighting fire. In that process, we fail to realize that fire is necessary. Fire is in fact essential. We now notice that by putting all fires out, by banning indigenous fire use, by fearing prescribed fire at scale, we set ourselves up for calamity. In this final episode of One Foot in the Black, we look back through the series and summarize what we've learned about fire in the era of climate change. From the cultural fire practitioners, wildland firefighters, fire scientists, and policymakers. Our goal was to explore the facts, future, and solutions of wildfire in the era of climate change. And we hope you are coming away with a greater understanding of the importance of fire and how we can live in this fire future together. We'll be right back with more from One Foot in the Black. Hey there, this is Jessica Klinke, producer of One Foot in the Black, coming to you from the stolen lands of the Shasta and Tacalma people in Southern Oregon. Those of us who benefit from the colonization and settlement of native land can take action by learning whose land you're on and then stand in solidarity with indigenous people who continue to fight for native justice and sovereignty. There are links and resources included in our show notes and on our website. Take some time to learn about the people and tribes native to the Klamath-Siskiyou region and support local groups and organizations fighting against injustices to people and the earth. Please visit their websites, follow them on social media, donate to their causes, and support indigenous-led land issues in your region, like the return of cultural fire use and food sovereignty. Now, back to One Foot in the Black. Our goal with this podcast has been to provide you with the tools you need to understand wildfire and to build a stronger relationship with it. I am Joseph Vale. And I'm Alexi Lavecchio. 
We cover the science, the history, and the politics of wildfire, and we hope these stories inspire you to create a more harmonious relationship between your community and the forest in which we live in and rely on. Wildfire is a vital part of ecosystems of the American West and landscapes around the world. The plants and animals that call these forests home evolve to coexist and even thrive with all types of wildfire. Aboriginal peoples use fire for millennia to maintain food sources, encourage medicinal plant growth, and ensure healthy wildlife populations. Wildfire is integral to both nature and humanity. The arrival of European colonizers brought an end to the traditional use of fire and the suppression of most wildfires. And by the mid 20th century, wildfire suppression reached an industrial scale. The unintended consequence was the complete upheaval to many fire-adapted ecosystems and native cultures. The removal of indigenous people from their land and their way of life removed an essential part of the ecosystem and an indigenous traditional ecological knowledge that exists through them. We've had many impacts since late 1800s for European invasion. And one of the most, I say, detrimental impacts is removing the Aboriginal people off the land. We are, we still are here. We are a keystone species to taking care of the land. And fire is a big part of that. We were friends with fire. Fire was our friend. Fire is medicine for the land. And when the people were removed and the farming with fire, for the many roots and berries and trees and grasses and everything that our people depended on for a subsistence lifestyle was interrupted is when we see the not so good management of our land. And it's for all kinds of reasons that we are facing the issues that we're facing. However, I believe the Aboriginal people and their Aboriginal fire is very necessary for good land management and for being able to bring back that concept and that practice to what we're facing today. We just heard from Belinda Brown, Tribal Partnership Director for Loma Katsi Restoration Project and member of the Pitt River Tribe. The removal of traditional burning has drastically altered landscapes throughout the country. The ecological structure of the forest has changed and flammable vegetation has accumulated. Today, climate change is bringing hotter, drier conditions to forests, leading to more severe fire and presenting numerous challenges to communities throughout the West. Fire has always been an essential part of forests in Western North America, but 21st century wildfires pose unique challenges to communities. There are now over 40 million homes in fire-prone landscapes, settled right on the edge of the fire country and the human footprint known as the wildland-urban interface. This number continues to grow every year. Janet Lancaster, co-founder of FireSmart Merlin, explains what makes one community have a higher risk of wildfire than another. So what makes a community at risk to wildfire, in my mind, has to do with the fuels and to some degree the climate. And specifically, there's this concept, it's not a concept, it's an actual term, a wildland urban interface or the WUI that describes the type of area most at risk of wildfire. By definition, an interface is where two things meet, two items meet. And in the WUI or in the wildland urban interface, that interface is between residential areas and wildland, and as I said, fuel. 
So over time, more development has taken place further into wildland or wooded areas. Also, you all are very acutely aware, areas with hot, dry climates are most at risk to wildfire, and climate change has exacerbated the impact of climate. There are many actions we can take to lessen the risks that fire pose to our lives and homes. Each community has a different need and different levels of resources. But the key to solving the wildfire problem is to develop local solutions that work for a given landscape and a given community. Charles Brooks described how Paradise, California is rebuilding after the devastating campfire in 2018, which destroyed over 18,000 structures and burned over 150,000 acres. The town of Paradise did an exhaustive set of research and brought forth a number of potential ordinances to town council to vote on that were, that were seen both scientifically and also recommended changes to our code, to our building code, to help make the community safer. And one of those that passed was the first five feet. Any new home can't have anything combustible connected to the home within the first five feet. So if you've got a wooden fence, a metal gate that connects to it, you can't have combustible materials up against the home. That's a pretty easy thing to enforce and, and to build back. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It, it really doesn't cost any more money. It's just a smart way of living. And I think the other thing that's going to come out of this is the need for more enforcement of existing ordinances around, around the safety and around mitigation efforts. And so that is where you count on your jurisdiction, your town, your city, your county to enforce those minimum guidelines of vegetation and five feet of clearance around a home minimum of five feet, because those are going to have the most dramatic effect. And I would say that those are the significant things that have come out of it. Fire isn't something we can stop completely. We are already witnessing the unintended consequences of fire exclusion, mainly that it leads to bigger fires in the future. But we can treat wildfire like the natural hazard that it is and shift our focus to planning and preparing our communities better. With hotter and drier weather on the way, forest fires will be a part of our lives for the foreseeable future. Understanding how we got into this mess of increased wildfire activity that is leading to communities burning down, we must re-examine our relationship with fire and move towards solutions. The only path forward is to learn to coexist with more fire on the landscape in the era of climate change. We know that wildfire is as important as rain to many ecosystems throughout the world. Instead of fearing fire, we need to embrace it. One of the best ways to restore our landscapes and build resiliency is to use more fire. This is not new. Indigenous peoples have used fire as a tool for millennia. The application of fire, it's a rejuvenation. It's, it's fire for life, not fire for death. We're trying to create life. And this environment where our animals can thrive and in turn we thrive we're fire practitioners we use fire for us for a reason it's not a monster it has our keystone elements and it has the right to exist and you can't keep it down because when it comes out mad and that's the fires we're getting now in order to thrive with fire and build a better relationship with it we need to update our current wildfire policies Climate change is having a massive impact on how fires are burning, adding an urgent need for better wildfire policy that will change how we use, prepare for, and fight fire. Wildfire provisions have recently passed in the Federal Infrastructure Bill, and many Western states have enacted new laws to address fire. 
There continues to be a debate about the magnitude of the problem and the best approaches to solve it. There is one part of the policy debate that is quite simple. To fix wildfire issues, we need a large workforce and a massive funding investment to match the scale of the issue. We spoke with Susan Jane Brown, an attorney with the Western Environmental Law Center. I think that the federal land management agencies have all of the authorities that they need to do the right thing on the land. What they don't have is funding to do it. And, and that include, that extends also to things like grant programs for home hardening and, and community preparedness and that sort of thing. We just don't have the money. The need is huge. It's, it's billions and billions of dollars worth of work on federal lands and for community uh, preparedness. And we just don't have the money. And without the money, you can have the best policy in the world, but you can't implement it. And in my view, we have the authority, the Forest Service, the BLM have the authority to put more fire on the ground. They have the authority to do science-based restoration projects. Um, landowners, private landowners have the authority and the ability to create defensible space around their home. What we don't have is the money and that takes political will to actually appropriate dollars in a way that addresses the root cause of these problems. Just like we cannot stop hurricanes, we cannot stop wildfires. Wildfire is natural and inevitable. We can't avoid it, but we can learn to thrive with fire. We can learn from indigenous communities who have been working with fire from time immemorial. We can manage fire on the landscape and keep flames away from our homes and communities. Rather than aggressively fighting to put out fires, we should work to prevent uncharacteristically severe wildfires and prepare our communities as much as possible. Before we get to the final act of this episode, I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to One Foot in the Black. We hope you've learned something new about wildfire in the West or that you've at least started to think differently about this complicated issue. One Foot in the Black is just one of the many projects and campaigns that KS Wild engages in on issues important to the communities of the Klamath Siskiyou and the West. If these issues are important to you, we hope you'll consider making an end-of-year contribution to our organization. Donations from people like you allow us to continue advocating for wildlands, wildlife, clean water, healthy communities, climate resiliency, and better policy. Visit www.kswild.org and click the Donate button in the upper corner. You can also support our work by sharing this podcast on your social media or giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks so much from all of us at One Foot in the Black and the Klamath Siskiyou Wildland Center. series, I wanted to take a more personal look at where we are now and what we all collectively face year after year when our forests, our towns, and our landscapes change and disappear through fire. No story about fire in the West would be complete without addressing how it impacts each of us through climate grief. Climate grief, ecological grief, eco-anxiety, environmental stress. 
These are some of the words that have been attributed to the overall feeling of existential dread that so many of us are experiencing when we think about the chaos and catastrophes we are experiencing with the climate crisis and the ongoing destruction of our environment. With all that has been happening in the United States over the last number of years, it's safe to say that we are continually living with collective trauma, which can result in learned helplessness or a sense of powerlessness arising from multiple traumatic events that can result in depression and anxiety. We desperately need to feel safe. But it is impossible to feel safe when those in power continually make decisions that erode our rights and bodily autonomy, that protect corporations instead of our planet, or that perpetuate inaction in the face of climate collapse. It is no surprise that we are grieving. We most commonly face grief when we lose someone we love. But what about when we lose a place that we love? What about the loss of a place that we've never even seen, but that we know existed, that once thrived, that sustained life, that makes it possible for us to survive? Thomas Doherty is a psychologist in Portland, Oregon, that works at the intersection of psychology and environmental science specifically applying an environmental perspective to mental health and well-being. He looks at climate or environmental grief as troubled feelings about past, current, or future losses associated with climate change and disruptions. The idea of grieving something that hasn't happened yet, a future grief, was a new concept for me. Grief is the feeling but mourning is the task. How do we mourn for the forests that have burned throughout the West? How do we mourn for the places that will be lost? There are personal ways to acknowledge this grief, but there are also public ways we can look to. I've spent the last two years watching my community in Southern Oregon grapple with the mourning and loss of our communities impacted by the Almeda fire. I've seen people come together and support. I've witnessed community rituals that help survivors cope and move forward, and also watched people struggle with survivors' guilt, those whose homes didn't burn, whose loss was intangible but real nonetheless. If we look historically, this kind of loss, the loss of loved places, of ecosystems, of communities, of animals and plants, it's not new. Indigenous people, refugees, people torn and separated from their homelands through enslavement, colonialism, and genocide. For them, the apocalypse is not in the future, but in the past. Generations of people carry that grief and trauma. This existential grief is not new to them. In this time of ecological crisis, however, it is the first time we are facing it as an entire species of human. We're also no longer talking in terms of geologic time. We're talking about changes in climate at the geologic scale, but which are happening in half a decade. 
This type of abrupt change is the equivalent of 10,000 years of climate change experienced in one lifetime. It all feels so dire. So how do we talk about it? The experience of collective grief might require a collective response. In my community, there have been informal gatherings to explore grief around climate change, a space to share personal and collective climate-related losses, engage in somatic exploration of how grief shows up in our bodies, and discussions of potential next steps for how to move forward. In many ways, these unprecedented times calls for a new language to help us communicate about these issues. Glenn Albrecht, an environmental philosopher and professor of sustainability in Australia, points out in his TED Talk from 2010 that the English language is impoverished when it comes to talking about the relationship of humans to our home environment, particularly when that environment is threatened. Yet our relationship to home is one of the most important relationships that exist for us as people. Albrecht's work focuses on the importance of connections between environmental health and human health, both physical and mental, and more specifically on developing a language for describing Earth-related emotions. Solastalgia is a concept developed by Albrecht to give greater meaning and clarity to environmentally induced distress. Specifically, solastalgia can be used to describe feelings which arise in people when an environment changes so much that it negatively affects an individual's quality of life. Likewise, Albrecht created the term solophilia, or the love of and responsibility for a place, bioregion, planet, and the unity of interrelated interests within it. If solastalgia is the disease, Solophilia is the positive and interconnected personal empowerment needed to combat it. It is the solidarity that drives us to action, and the recognition that only when sufficient numbers of us act in solidarity can we defeat the forces of desolation. While these neologisms can help ground feelings that can at times feel out of control, it's important to recognize that indigenous communities have understood this love and responsibility for place since time immemorial. And it is not something that can just be described in one way, but rather a complex fusing of identity, worldview, spiritual connectedness, and a relationship that implies a direct responsibility for the natural world because it is so directly related to us. When we experience climate grief, sadness, or loss, we are dealing with something that goes beyond our sense of individuality and connects to our memory of a place. It is a deep time memory that links us back to the origin of our species, that puts our species into the collective as part of an ecosystem. We are not separate from the places that support us. We never have been. We may be more mobile, more fluid, more globally connected than in other times of history or in times beyond historical record. But our ties to the land and to nature is deeply rooted in our humanity. It's time to listen to indigenous leaders and build allyship, become co-conspirators. They are still here, 
having survived genocide and an ecological and cultural apocalypse. And if we're going to get through this new collapse, we need to begin relating personally to the living world and abolish the othering of nature and the natural world that is so driven by Western thought and society. I'll leave you with the words of eco-philosopher, activist, and deep ecology scholar Joanna Macy, who warns to not distrust our feelings or privatize them, but rather emerge from them into radical transformation. Do not be afraid of your despair and grief and outrage. Climate grief is not a private pathology. And when we open to it, when we don't live in our fear that this is a personal crisis, we can find the emotional courage to move forward and build collaborative action. One Foot in the Black is a production of the Klamath Siskiyou Wildland Center. This episode was written by Jessica Klinky, Joseph Vale, and Alexi Lavecchio. Editing and sound design by Jessica Klinky. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. A big thank you to our guests featured in this episode. Tim Inglesby, Belinda Brown, Janet Lancaster, Charles Brooks, and Susan Jane Brown. Links and resources for topics covered in this episode, including sources for the final act on climate grief, are available on the episode page at kswild.org podcast. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, and review One Foot in the Black on your preferred podcast platform. It helps people find our show and makes us feel good about doing it. Thanks so much for listening to One Foot in the Black.